This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. I mean, I love, um, I love watching obstacle course shows with my boys. I've got two 10-year-old boys. We love watching these obstacle course shows. And our favorite is American Ninja Warrior. And if you've never seen an American Ninja Warrior has these, like, these are ridiculous athletes. They don't look it. They look like you and me, but they're not. Uh, and and they, they go through these series of six insane obstacles where you're like, you watch them do the first two and they're not even really thinking and you're like, you would have stumbled on the first step of the first obstacle. But they couple look easy. And, uh, and typically the obstacle course, it ends up on a tower that they have to climb. And if you survive, if you make it all the way through, there's this big red button, this plunger that you press up at the top of the tower. Only that button doesn't say, that was easy. Uh, this was way harder to be able to get up there. And if you press that button, you gain access to this exclusive club of elite athletes, a club that not just anyone can join. Right? Only those who successfully navigate the entire course, who complete every obstacle and press that red button are admitted, right? Only the best of the best. This is like Top Gun type things right here. And you know, at times, I think that's kind of how we approach God and how we relate to God, isn't it? As though God is like distant and otherly. He's high and lifted up, but he's out there up on his tower. And that it is our responsibility to somehow make our way to him. And we treat life like this obstacle course that we've got to navigate and only those with the strength and the intellect to navigate this course are going to find God. And only those with the courage and the stamina to overcome the obstacles, to overcome their sin, are able to live in peace with God and to stand in his presence high atop his tower. And we don't just do that with God, we do that with others as well. And that was the very belief that Paul set out to correct in his letter to the churches in Galatia that we're looking at in our series, What Makes Us Family. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul remind them there at the end of chapter 2 that a person is not justified, right? A person is not made right, and a person does not remain right with God by works of the law, by what you do, but through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Faith in what he did for you. You're not accepted by God because you successfully navigated a course, because you overcame some obstacles, because you ascended the tower to him, arrived in his presence and pressed that red button. Rather, the theme of this letter and the big idea of our series is this. It's that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family, isn't it? Our faith makes us family. It is what unites us. It's what unites us with God, and it's what unites us with each other. Nothing more. Nothing less. Our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. And this is a significant claim that Paul was making here at the end of chapter 2. And, uh, and he knows that it is. So, it, so like, a, like an attorney in a courtroom, so to speak, he supports his claim with evidence. And we see that evidence throughout this middle section in the letter in chapters 3 and 4. And last week, we began this middle section seeing uh, Paul using their own experience as evidence as we reflected on our story of faith, of God working in and through our lives. And this morning, Paul presents six different Old Testament passages as evidence, reflecting on faith 
in the Old Testament. That's going to be the title of our sermon this morning, Reflecting on Faith in the Old Testament. And he presents these Old Testament passages to support his claim that we are justified by faith, showing that this gospel that he preached, that others were questioning, others were doubting, it it was nothing new, it was nothing novel, but it was something that was always true. Going all the way back to Abraham, we're going to see. And so we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see how we are blessed through faith. We're going to see how we're cursed through the law. But then we're going to see how we're ultimately redeemed in and through Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we see this morning as we reflect on our faith in the Old Testament is that we are blessed through faith in Christ, right? We are blessed through faith. And Paul, he supports this claim by using two key passages from the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And he shows us that by misunderstanding how Abraham was declared righteous by God, we then also misunderstand who is included in the family of God. The two are connected. And so first he shows us uh, this misunderstanding of how Abraham was declared righteous by God. And he says in verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. Now, that question mark there would probably be a better fit at the end of verse 5, not at the end of verse 6. Uh, we got a, a new section starting here with verse 6, and he starts off saying that Abraham believed God. And Abraham he was a big deal in the Bible, right? I mean, he's got a lot of chapters devoted to him. We meet him in chapter 11 here at the end. And Abraham, he was the father of the Jewish people. He was the, the beginning of their family tree, so to speak. And uh, any of y'all learned that song growing up as a kid? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father Abraham. I see a lot of heads bopping but not singing. That's okay. I sing for you. Now, he was the father of Isaac. He was the father of Jacob. He was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was the father of David, of Solomon, and on down the line. And and Jewish interpretation of Scripture at this time, it viewed Abraham's righteousness um, not the result of um, him believing God, but of him obeying God. And that he was declared righteous, not because of his faith in God, but because of his faithfulness to God. Not because he trusted God, but because he was tested by God, and he passed that test. And we see that in Jewish writing over this this 200-year period here uh, before before Paul writes. We see in the Jewish book of 1 Maccabees 2, which captures some of the, the Maccabean revolt story, it asks, was not Abraham found faithful when tested? And it was then reckoned to him as righteousness? And the testing that the author here is referring to is that of the story of God testing Abraham in Genesis 22, where God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son, to give this gift from God back to God. And they believed then that he was righteous because he passed this test. Some rabbis taught that you had to pass a series of 10 tests in order to be declared righteous. Or in the the book of Sirach, a a Jewish uh, book of wisdom, it says in chapter 44, it says, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. So far, so good. But then it says, he kept the law of the Most High, right, stressing his obedience to God. And he entered into a covenant with him, stressing that he submitted to God. And he certified the covenant in his flesh, right? He bore the mark of circumcision, the mark of the covenant. And when he was tested, he proved faithful, right? He pressed that big red button at the top of the tower. 
And so he's, the author here is stressing all that Abraham did, and then he says, therefore, as a result of what he did, the Lord then assured him with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, that he then would make him numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the stars and give them an inheritance from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. It was all because of what Abraham did they believed. And the gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that was being preached by some in the churches in Galatia, they, they couldn't have been any more different. The gospel Paul preached it, uh, of God's free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it contradicted their version because their gospel that some were preaching in Galatia, it declared the, that to be included in God's family, to be considered a child of Abraham, you had to follow after Abraham. You had to do what he did the way that he did it. You had to be faithful and obedient so that God might accept you. Their gospel required then adherence to the Mosaic law, right? Bearing the mark of circumcision we've seen and adopting Jewish culture, uh, celebrating the holy days, observing the food laws. In effect, what they were teaching was that you needed to become more Jewish, more like Abraham to be a son of Abraham, to be a Christian, to be part of of this family of God. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You, you guys, you got it all wrong. You have completely misunderstood. You completely misinterpreted the entire story of Abraham. And so what Paul says right here is, he says, open your Bibles with me to Genesis 15. Actually, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Genesis 15. Why not? Why not? So he says, open your Bibles with me to Genesis 15. Mind you, it would have been like uh, papyrus scrolls. It would have been kind of rough. They weren't just pulling out their phones then. But pull out your Bibles, Genesis 15. Let's look at this story of God's covenant with Abraham, Paul says. And, and even though Paul only cites Genesis 15, 6 here, verse 6, uh, when you see a New Testament writer uh, cite a verse or a portion of a verse, it is typically representative of the whole, of the entire context and story that verse sits in. And so please hear me like, Paul's not proof texting here. He's using the context. And so in this story, uh, God promised Abraham an heir, uh, someone that would inherit his blessing. The kicker is, is Abraham's like in his 80s right now. And Sarah, his wife's in her 70s, and they don't have any kids. And so Abraham, he's like, I must have misunderstood you, God. So like, maybe, did you mean someone else would be my heir? And he asked, like, is this servant of mine, is he going to be my heir? Because he's like, I'm 70, or I'm 80, she's 70. He's like, we're not having kids. That's impossible. So this must be what you meant, right? And God's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. He says, your very own son shall be your heir. And I love this part. God, he, he takes Abraham outside, and he says, look toward the heaven, and, and, and number the stars. Count all the stars if you're able to. Hint, you're not going to be able to. So shall your offspring be. Your offspring will outnumber the stars in the heaven. And then we get to verse 6 here, and it says that Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. But if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, Abraham has not yet been circumcised. That, that's not for another two chapters until chapter 17. Abraham has not yet passed God's test. That wasn't until Genesis 22. But all the way back here, God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed God. 
He believed that God is who he says he is, that he is sovereign and faithful, and he trusted God. He trusted God to do what he said he would do as impossible as it seemed. He, He believed that God had the ability to fulfill his promise, but not just that, that he had the desire to fulfill his promise, that he could and that he would. God declared Abram as righteous, not because of his faithfulness, but because of his faith. Not because he obeyed God, but because he believed God. And he was credited with something he had not earned that he did not deserve. But by misunderstanding how Abraham was declared righteous by God, we also misunderstand who is included in the family of God. And so look at verse 7 with me. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not only true for Abraham, that's true for anyone. That, that, that sons are not those who are his biological descendants. His sons are not those who did what he did in terms of being circumcised. No, his sons are those who, like Abraham, believed God. And this wasn't something new that Paul was making up. This wasn't something novel. He's going to show that this is what God has always planned. This is what God always intended. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's preaching the same gospel that God preached to Abram some 2,000 years earlier. In a story we see a couple pages back, so flip with me back to Genesis 12, just a couple pages back. And in Genesis 12 here, we see the story of God's promised blessing to Abraham and to his descendants. God, he he calls Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 to uh, leave his home and all that he knew and travel, he says, to a land I will show you but a land I've not yet shown you or even told you about, to this unknown, foreign destination. God, he was calling Abraham to trust him and to follow him wherever he might lead. And then he says in verse 2, he says to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And then we come to what Paul cites here in verse 3 where he says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families. God's promised blessing was never intended to be limited to Abraham, limited to his biological descendants, limited to the nation of Israel or or the Jewish people, but available to all people, available to anyone, to all the families of the earth, to all the nations, as Paul says. And when Paul says nations here, keep in mind, he, he doesn't mean geopolitical nation states like we think of. No, he's talking about people groups, that this promised blessing would be available to anyone. And the, the original Greek word here that Paul uses for Gentiles, ethnos, it's, it's actually the same word that he uses for nations. And so they're, they're one and the same here. And so I, I need us to see Paul's not making a political statement here. He's making a cultural statement. He's making an ethnic statement. That this extends, this promised blessing extends universally to all who, like Abraham, believed God, to anyone through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why if we sing the song and we keep going, 
right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And right arms at first? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you weren't singing with me, but you were going to do the hand motions with me. Okay. Did you pick up that I said the word universal? Does that, we get a little bit of twinge there? So please don't hear what I'm not saying, and please don't read what Paul's not writing here. Right? He's not promoting an idea of universalism here. I think there's a, there's a significant difference when we use the word everyone and when we use the word anyone. Everyone implies that something is universally applicable. Everyone here is in this room. Make sense? Uh, everyone here is sitting in a green chair. All the gray chairs. Well, is there a gray chair back there? And you guys got gray chairs. Man, I blew it. That's what happens when you go off your notes. But anyone implies something different, implies that something's universally applicable. And that's what Paul's saying here, that it is available. Right? Because see, God never intended for his family to be limited to those who simply shared a national identity. He never intended it to be limited to those who share a cultural or racial or ethnic identity. He never intended it to be for where everyone looks the same and lines up the same. And what that then means for us is that we are not the gatekeepers that get to determine who is and who is not admitted into God's family. Amen? That's kind of important there. We are not the gatekeepers. God has not entrusted us to determine who and who is not saved. I think Jesus said something about thou shalt not judge, judging the salvation of others. But instead, what we see here is actually beautiful. Because if all the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis 12, what God promised to Abraham is exactly what Jesus revealed to John all the way at the end of the story in Revelation 7, isn't it? of a great multitude that no one could number, outnumbering the stars in the heaven, from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ is one multicultural, multi-ethnic family where we do not look the same, where we don't sound the same, we don't necessarily think the same. And that's beautiful, isn't it? We begin to see beauty in that diversity. From every corner of the earth, from every generation, one family united by faith in Jesus. We are blessed through our faith in Christ, aren't we? We are blessed. We are accepted by God, and we belong to his family. But the second thing that we see here as we reflect on faith in the Old Testament is that we are cursed through relying on the law. We're cursed through relying on the law. Not a fun word to talk about, is it? Like, oh, blessing, that's great, promises, yay. Curse, thanks, Pastor Ash, you brought us down. But that's what he says. And, and so treating life as this obstacle course that we have to successfully navigate in order to be accepted by God, in order to be included in his family, uh, trying to make yourself enough for God, that doesn't lead to God at the top of the tower. It doesn't lead to blessing. No, Paul's going to show us that it leads to being cursed. And he's going to give us three reasons why here. And the first is that we're simply unwilling to submit to God's authority, right? We are unwilling to submit to the entirety of God's law. He, he says here in verse 10, he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Here, Paul, he's citing a passage from Deuteronomy 27 in verse 26. But yet again, it's representative of the broader passage where Moses, he's, he's preaching his uh, third and final sermon uh, at the end of the, the Exodus, towards the end of their 40 years of wandering, just before they're about to cross the Jordan, enter the promised land. God pauses for a moment to review the terms and the conditions of the agreement that he has made with his people of the Mosaic law. And see, when God liberated his people from Egypt, when he redeemed them from slavery, he declared these people to be his treasured possession, a people unto himself. And he called them to be holy simply because he himself was holy. He he called them to be set apart from the rest of the world. Set apart in the way they lived. Set apart in the way they worshiped. According to the Mosaic law, according to the law that God handed down to Moses atop Mount Sinai. And part of the very specific blessing, specific to those biological descendants of Abraham, to the 12 tribes of Israel, was land. And as long as they lived according to the way that God prescribed, they were going to live in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. But if they were unwilling to submit to God's authority, if they were unwilling to be set apart and live differently from the rest of the world, they would be cursed. They would be banished, God says, from the land. And if we flip a few thousand pages later in our Bible, a thousand years, not pages. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? About a thousand years later, they were conquered by Babylon and the people were taken away from the land and into exile. And, you know, I think we, we look a lot like Israel at times. Um, we don't like being told what to do, do we? There's a little bit of the terrible twos that's still in us. I think it's like the frightening 44s now for me. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told how to live. We don't like being told when to do it or how to do it. And me, and I'm probably a few of you as well, I especially don't like being told how to drive. And I especially don't like being told how to drive from my mother. 44 now, Mom. So here's the thing. My mom lives in Arizona, and uh, just for the record, like, we lived in Arizona first, so I drove those roads before she did. Um, But when I'm driving with my mom in the car, when we go down to visit her, like, driving on the freeway, we'll get in, and she'll be like, okay, you need to move over to the HOV lane, the high occupancy lane. I'm like, well, yeah, that makes sense. We got, like, two or three of us in the car. We should get over there, because as you guys just saw, like, traffic in Phoenix is kind of like 290 everywhere. Oh, yeah, it's not great. But you get over to the HOV lane and you're like, Shoo! okay. So some people actually will carry a blow-up doll in the car with them, at least they used to, just to make it look like they had a passenger with them. And so I'm good with that. I'm okay listening to her there. But then uh, it's like we barely got on and she's already like, okay, you need to start moving over for your exit. Mom, the exit's in like 15 miles. So do you think that I get over? No, it's okay. You can say that. I don't get over. Do you think I get over with two miles to go? No. One mile to go? No. Half mile to go? No. Quarter mile to go? No. I'm waiting until like I'm almost parallel with the exit and bam, across five lanes of traffic. And I make it. I knew what I was doing. But like the only reason I'm doing this is because I don't like my mama telling me how to drive. And if she's watching this right now, I love you, mom. 
But it's also proof the terrible twos never leave, do they? They never leave. Like that rebellion remains in us. Like, yeah, let's be honest. If I told you to raise your hands, you'd put them under your, your legs right now, wouldn't you? I told you to stand, you'd sit. Tell you to sit, you'd stand. Maybe I should try that. Hey, everybody sit, please. That's pretty interesting. I know if I ask you to stand, you're not going to stand. We're not going to do that one. But we, we don't like submitting to authority, do we? And oftentimes, we're just flat out unwilling to. We want to obey what we want and when we want. And not just with our moms, but with God sometimes as well. We want to live the way we want. And it's easy for us to begin to treat God's word like a, a book and a list of recommendations. Hey, why don't you think about this? When it says thou shalt, what he really means is think about this. That it might be good. Maybe. Depends. And, and when we treat it that way, we kind of treat life like, a, like an obstacle course that's, this is too difficult to navigate. Some of this is really hard, right? Some of this stuff's hard. And like, Remember that part where he's like, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? That part's hard, okay? Um, you know what? Let's just skip those. Like in the race, if you skip an obstacle, you just do a few burpees, right? You know, you do one of those mud run things, you just do a few burpees and move on, or maybe get a time penalty. Fine, add two minutes to my time. I don't care. I wasn't running for time anyway. I just wanted the t-shirt and the medal. And we think we're okay. No big deal. We pick and choose, right? And that's what was happening in Galatia, is that those that had come in and preaching this gospel of law rather than grace, they were only, they were imposing additional requirements to faith, making it Jesus and other things in order to be accepted by God, in order to be included in the family of God. But they weren't requiring the entirety of the law, right? They were picking and choosing the aspects they wanted to follow, the aspects they wanted to enforce on others. And so what Paul's doing here, he's calling out their hypocrisy because their practiced behavior did not align with their professed beliefs. They claimed and enforced adherence to the Mosaic law for all Christians. If you were a Gentile Christian, if you were a pagan, in order to become Christian, you had to become more Jewish but they didn't follow the whole law. And Paul, he calls out their hypocrisy here and even more directly at the close of his letter where he says in chapter 6, verse 13, for even those who are circumcised, those who are forcing this on you, they themselves don't keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so Paul, he's like, you want to require circumcision? That's great. Okay, if you do that, though, I need you to know something you got 612 other regulations you have to enforce and follow as well. And, and, and it's not pick and choose. It is all or nothing. Okay? Do or do not. There is no try. Okay, Paul said this long before Yoda did. And he's like, if you choose to live under the law, you must submit to the entirety of the law. Every T and C, every term and condition, just as God wrote it, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Adhering to every dot and iota, iota being the, the smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And not just abiding by them all, but abiding by them at all time, always continuously submitting to the entirety of the law. And are we any different with the picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like? Unwilling to submit to the entirety of the authority of God's word? Treating God's word like a list of recommendations that we get to pick and choose from, what we want to follow, how we want to follow it, the way we want to follow it, even when we want to follow it, and the rest of it, 
Like, we're really good at exegesis when we need to be. We're really good at interpreting the Bible to say what we want it to say. Right? We'll just twist the text. We take it out of its context, and we make it say what we want to say to justify our behavior, and even worse, to vilify the behavior of others at times. All because we are unwilling to submit the entirety of our lives to the entirety of God's authority. But here's the thing. Let's say, okay, you know what? i got a change in heart. I want to do this now. Even if you wanted to, even if you were willing, you are unable. Because the second reason Paul kind of alludes to here is that we are unable to abide by the entirety of God's law. We, we don't have the ability. And so some things, some things are improbable, aren't they? They're unlikely. It probably won't happen. We probably won't have an 80-degree day in February in Chicago. Not saying it can't happen, but it's improbable. But other things are just outright impossible. They cannot happen. Like, for example, driving on 290 with no traffic during the rush hour. That is impossible. It cannot happen. And abiding by the entirety of God's law, it, it, it's not just improbable. It is outright impossible. We don't have the strength. We don't have the endurance. We don't have the ability. We are incapable Luther, when he was writing about this, he says, trying to be justified by the law, he says, it's like counting money out of an empty purse. It's like eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup. It's like looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty. It's like laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse. It is like trying to spend 100 gold pieces and not having even a pittance. Predicted, in some sense, the credit card right there, didn't he? Just notice that. And I think if, he, if, if Martin Luther were alive today and writing, one, he'd be really old. Uh, but two, I think he'd add something like attempting to navigate an obstacle course that is impossible for you to complete. That's what trying to be justified by the law is like. And that living under the law, Paul says, is living under a curse. Choosing the law is choosing a curse. And he doesn't want that for us. But he gives us one more reason. He, and this is really the big one. It's like if the other two don't matter, if you are willing and if you think you are able, relying on the law, we're uh, relying on the law to do what it was never intended to do. It is incapable of doing what we hope it would do. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one, no one not ever is justified before God by the law. For, and he quotes Habakkuk here, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I think sometimes we're prone to view God's grace and God's law as, as two alternatives, right? A choose your own adventure story. Two paths that ultimately lead to the same destination. They're just different ways, right? You got the, you got the scenic route, and, and you got the shortcut. The scenic route is kind of hard to navigate, but it, it's pretty along the way. But then you got the shortcut, and you can skip right to the end of the line. And Paul's saying that's, that's, that's not how we should look at this. Like, that's not the case. He says, no one is justified before God by the law. It was never its intended purpose. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Right? The, law, the law is not another path to the same destination. 
It does not lead to life. It does not lead to God. No, it leads to death. It leads to a dead end. It leads to a curse. And so even if you manage to successfully navigate this course, even if you manage to successfully climb the tower and press that red button, you still won't be accepted by God for having pressed that button. Because that's not the point of the law. It, it was not given to Israel so that they may be redeemed. Remember, it was given to Israel after they had already been liberated, liberated, after they had already been freed, after they had already been declared God's people. No, instead, what it did is it taught them how to live in response to what God had already done. It taught them to live not so that, not in hopes of what God might do, but in response because of what God had already done. And that in itself is living out the gospel, isn't it? Living because of God's love, because of God's acceptance, not so that, not for his acceptance. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Galatians, he, he summarizes this saying, the law from the beginning has indicated only one way of salvation, only one way to be accepted into God's family. And that is something done by God and not by humans, not by us. The person who really keeps the law realizes the law can never justify. It is incapable. And so puts his faith and trust in the faithfulness of God. And so while they're not two paths to the same destinations, they are two choices, two ways in which we can choose to live. We can choose to live by law, relying on our own ability to complete an impossible task or we can choose to live by faith and rely on God to do what we are incapable of doing. And if I can give you a little hint, I'm going to give you the hint that Paul gave here, quoting Habakkuk. He, the righteous, those declared righteous, those accepted by God, they, they live by faith. Believing that God is who he says he is and trusting that God will do all that he's promised to do. And by reflecting on faith in the Old Testament, on the life of Abraham and on the curse of the law, what we come to know, what we know to be true is this. It's that we are redeemed through Christ's sacrificial death, right? We, we are redeemed. We are freed. We are accepted through Christ's sacrificial death. Let's look at these last two verses here in 13 and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Right? Our sin, it, it separated us from God, didn't it? It made us enemies of God. We, our sin, it has accrued a debt so large we could never hope to repay it. The harder we try, the more in debt we go. It has dug a chasm so wide we could never cross it. The more we tried to build the bridge, the wider and deeper that chasm gets. We are cursed. But that's the very reason Jesus came, isn't it? That's what makes the gospel good news, is that Jesus did what we were unwilling to do and what we were unable to do, redeeming us from the curse of the law, redeeming us from our need to save ourselves, to be enough, breaking the chains that enslaved us to the law, freeing us, liberating us by taking sin's curse on himself on the cross. And Jesus here, he was, he was not cursed because he hung on a tree. No, he was nailed to the cross. He hung on the tree because he took on our curse, because he took on our shame, our sin. On the cross, Jesus paid 
our debt by shedding his blood. Jesus died our death by giving his life. And his cross bridges that chasm that separates us from God. And we are no longer enemies of God, but we are children of God. We are his adopted and beloved children. And so what that means for us, what that means for us as followers of Christ, as a church family, it means that acceptance into God's family, it does not come through what you do, but through faith in what Christ did for you. Every week, does it feel like it's kind of the same big idea to some extent? How many ways can Paul tell us that faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us family? He's going to keep beating this point home until we get it, and then he's going to beat that point some more. Acceptance into God's family does not come through what you do, but through faith in what Christ did for you. And that means that the promised blessings that he talks about here in verse 14 of God's acceptance, right, of being adopted into his family as sons of Abraham, not biological sons, but spiritual sons of Abraham, we receive that promised blessing. But not just God's acceptance, we also receive the promised blessing of God's presence with the indwelling of his spirit in us. And this promised blessing it is no longer limited to a few, but available to anyone, to all peoples, Jew, Gentile, regardless of birth, nationality, race, ethnicity, gender, age, ability, even your past sins and failure are not too much for Jesus to overcome. Amen? And here's the question for you this morning. Do you believe this? Everything we've talked about, everything that Paul has said here, Everything the Spirit has stirred in your heart over these last few moments. Do you believe this? Like Abraham, do you believe God? Do you believe that he is who he says he is, that he'll do what he's promised to do? And what we've talked about throughout this series is that our behaviors reveal our beliefs, don't we? When we're not sure what we really believe, look at how we act. Look at our behavior. And so as Paul has presented the evidence, let's reflect on the evidence for a bit, the evidence in our own lives, in our own heart. And so I have two questions for us. Number one, what do you believe about how you were accepted by God? What do you believe about the how? And if you're not sure, what does your behavior reveal? Does it reveal that you believe that you were accepted by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, amen. And chances are we believe that most of the time, some of the time, but probably not all the time. Because I think some of the time, our behavior reveals that we believe that we are accepted by what we do. I think we are prone, you guys remember that SNL skit with Stuart Smalley? I think sometimes we believe Stuart Smalley more than we do God. Stuart Smalley was a self-help guru, so to speak, and he would look in the mirror and he would say, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. And I think we do that. I think we think to ourselves, if, if I am good enough, if I am smart enough, if I am whatever enough, then doggone it, people should like me. And you know what? God should like me too. He should accept me. But what that mindset does is it leads us to another question. The question is, how much is enough? You're constantly feeling that pressure to be enough, to measure up, and that leaves you anxious, wondering if you're measuring up to God's expectations of you, to your own expectations of you, to your family, to your spouse's expectation, to your kids' expectations, your friends' expectations, your employer or professor's expectations. It's crushing. And we live with that constant anxiety of wondering if we are enough. And after a bit, it's just exhausting. Like, we can't keep running this race. I can't climb that wall anymore. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating because you're failing over and over and over at that same obstacle. You can't do a burpee to get around it. 
You, you can't just take the time penalty and go around it. You, you're frustrated at your own failures. You're frustrated at the failures of others. You're frustrated at God for not removing that obstacle in your way. God, why are you so mad at me? If you loved me, you would have gotten that out of the way. And then we project that impossible expectation on others, expecting them to measure up to our expectations to be enough. And like all of that, when we feel that, man, don't, don't, don't shove that away. Don't ignore it. Lean into that and know that when we feel that, it signs that we're trying to do what we're incapable of doing rather than trusting in what Christ did for you. What do you believe about how you're accepted by God? And number two, what do you believe about who is accepted by God? And what does your behavior toward others reveal? Who, who are you excluding? Who doesn't belong? Who doesn't measure up? Who's not enough? Who is too far gone? Now, mind you, I'm not talking about those boundaries that we have established for our own safety, our physical safety, our emotional safety, our spiritual safety. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who have you excluded? Who is not enough? And why is that? Why is it that they don't measure up for you? But see, these two go together because if you misunderstand how we're accepted by God, we're likely going to misunderstand who is included in the family of God, thinking, thinking that you don't belong because of what you've done, thinking that that other person doesn't belong because of what they've done. But you know what the good news of the gospel is? It's that there is no sin the blood of Christ cannot forgive. Amen? No sin cannot be forgiven by Christ's blood. And that offer of forgiveness, it is extended to everyone. Everyone who then receives and lives by faith in what Jesus did for you. Because on the cross, Jesus took it all and he paid it all. But the good news of the gospel is also that the promised blessing of God's acceptance, that we are included and adopted into his family. And of God's presence, the indwelling of his spirit is available to anyone. It is no longer limited. It is available to anyone who, like Abraham, believes God. Acceptance into God's family does not come through what you do, but through faith in what Christ did for you. And I don't expect us to have answers to those two questions just yet. But in the moment, I want us to sit with them. And I'm going to pray that the Spirit would stir. And so I want to spend the next minute in, in a time of silent prayer and reflection. We're going to leave these questions up on the screen. And my prayer for you in this moment is for the Spirit to reveal to you your behaviors that reveal your beliefs about the how and about the who. And so let's spend the next minute in prayer, and then I'll close us in prayer before we take communion. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.